My name is Luke. If we haven't met, love to meet you after the service. One of the pastors here at Legacy. And uh, before we get into it, just a real quick announcement. And by, hey, happy spring, by the way. Happy daylight savings where the government robs us an hour. I'm just playing. I'm not going to go off on that. I was telling my wife this morning, every time I lose an hour of sleep, I get really chatty, right? I get a little grumpy, and then none of my jokes are funny, right? So I'm going to do the best I can to not be grumpy and to have good jokes for you today. <laughs> but on, on that, and if you're watching from home, I hope you're, if, if you're away at spring break, hope you're having a great time, great time of rest. Look forward to having you back. Um, we have a partnership meeting coming on March 21st, which is next Sunday. Let me, let me be clear on something. That's not going to be in person. That's going to be digitally, all right. Um, the reason we're doing that, and, and I know, listen, I, I know everybody is so sick and tired of Zoom, um, sick and tired of doing things digitally. We're tired of the word digital. I, I, I get that. I just want to remind you, we have a lot of people, a lot of people that are still uncomfortable in compressed areas um, still. And I think it's good for us to be reminded of that. It's easy for us to kind of drop our guard and drop our precautions at this stage in the game because let's just face it, cases are down, right? Things are getting better. Um, and it's going to be easier to drop our guard. I was thinking about it when I was getting out of the truck this morning, how whenever this whole thing started a year ago, I was using a new mask like every day. I didn't know, I just didn't know I'm using a new mask. Now, I think I'm using the same one for like a month, probably found it on the ground, right? Not really. See, I told you my jokes were going to do the best they could today. That's what you get. But I, I want to make space for those who are uncomfortable in a compressed area to be a part of our partners meeting. So we already sent out an invite in a Zoom link to get onto that. And we'll, we'll remind you this next week when we do it again. Um, but I just, I invite you to come and be a part of that where you can just hear what God is doing in Legacy now, what he has done over the last maybe six to nine months and where we are going as we move forward. Um, but listen, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, it's going to be very helpful for us today as we continue through this series that we're doing called Home Not Home. Really a look at how Knoxville is our city. You have an address. This is our home. We work here. We play here. Our family is here. Um, but this isn't really our home. We're sojourners. We're traveling through. We're pilgrims where this is not our residence. Now we invest here, we pour our life and our blood and our sweat and our tears and our treasure and our resources and our time into this place, but this isn't the end of who we are. And what Peter is doing is he's speaking to a church on these things as they're starting to find persecution and suffering. So he's bringing some very timely words. And that's where we're going to find him as we finish out the fourth chapter of First Peter today. And while you're turning there, in 1999, I got my hands on a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Some of you might have heard of it. Some of you might own it. I don't actually think that's the real name of it. It was uh, written by John Fox way back in 1550s, maybe the 1570s is where it was written. And it is him telling the story of Christian martyrs from the apostles all the way back to maybe his contemporaries in the 1500s. Um, so we could probably add some volumes to that of people who have died for the sake of the gospel, um, people who John says in Revelation love their lives not even to death. 
Now, when I got my hand on this short little volume, it's probably this big. It'd be this big if you added contemporary stories. But as, as I read through it, it's the very first time I went down the rabbit hole of seeing what men and women could look like when death didn't make them flinch anymore. I never really caught eye of what it looked like to greet suffering with warmth and a smile and joy and endurance and patience. I'd never seen it. I was just entranced by it. I caught a glimpse of what I wanted to be like. I was a baby Christian. And I said, I don't know that I'm hungry for the sword, but what I am hungry is for what this guy and this gal look like when the sword comes around, when they're in a prison. That is exactly what I want to be like. Two of my favorites from that book, John Bradford and John Leaf, they were alive. They were John Fox's contemporaries. So this would be in the mid-1500s, 1550, somewhere around there. They were killed on the same day, but they were led from different cells. They were what we would call proto-Protestant preachers, which meant they were really in jail because they would teach things like confession to a priest was unnecessary and they can't absolve your sins. They would preach that uh, communion doesn't save you. These would be the things that they didn't want to work for the Pope. That got them in jail. It would get them a death sentence. This was a struggle for the, the predominant church at the time. So these guys are in there. And John Bradford, who was the oldest of the two men I mentioned, he was beloved by the guards. He was beloved. He was adored. They loved him because he would be compassionate and he would minister to the villains and the criminals that were there. A lot like Joseph was uh, thought well of by his guards, so was John Bradford. In fact, he was so trusted and so well loved, but they would let him go out of jail with no accompaniment, with no guard with him, so that he could minister to the diseased of the city, as long as he promised to be back by a certain time, and he always came back about 10 minutes early. It's the kind of guy he was. He did this for a long time, until one day in July, 1555, where the guards told him that the next day he would be burned at the stake. Now that same night, there was another man named John Leaf, who was 20. And he was given two letters from a prominent Catholic bishop. One was a recantation. And if he signed it, saying that he is no longer going to preach the gospel, he could leave that jail cell that night. The other one was a confession. That if he signed the confession, he would go to the stake the very next day. So not only did he sign the confession, confessing to preaching the gospel, he pricked his finger and bled on it and signed it with his blood to signify to the bishop that he's going to seal his own death with his own testimony, which is the biggest of boss moves right there, I think, right, for a 20-year-old. And while he's signing that, it was said at that very moment, a cross in another jail cell, Bradford the Older, as he was being told that he would be burned at the stake, this was his statement. Thank God I've looked forward to this for a long time. The Lord make me worthy. So the next day, both Johns were escorted out and attached to the same stake. Bradford, the older, he grabs a piece of the firewood that would be underneath him very soon and he kisses it. He preaches the gospel to all who can hear him in the moment. He forgives the executioners. And then he turns to the younger, Leaf, and he says this, be at peace, brother. We will have happy supper with the Lord tonight. How do you get a faith like that? How do you trust God on a level like that? It's my big question, right? Reading this book as a younger man, how do you get to the place where you kiss firewood that will burn you, 
and you forgive the executioners who will light the match and set it all afire. You know, what Peter's going to do in our passage today is he's addressing sufferers. And a lot like Bradford speaking to Leaf, he speaks to us and he says, be at peace. For we too, although we're sharing a suffering with Christ, we will share glory with Christ one day. That's what he's been saying this whole letter. He's going to help us take a fresh look at how to hold suffering. Okay? How to hold it. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon on how to escape suffering. A, I wouldn't know how to do that. B, I don't think it's biblical, that there's some way that we can just kind of, like a pry bar, leverage suffering away. What we're going to look at is how we hold it, how we greet it, how we carry it. That's what he's going to teach today. So let's look at verse 12, chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to do all the heavy lifting. We'll see Christ pretty vibrantly in a passage like this. It says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, you were blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, remember we looked last week at whenever we see the word therefore, what is it therefore? Okay, so therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay, main idea here. Fiery troubles, trials, they're not odd, so we shouldn't be surprised when they come. That's one of the main ideas. And when we reenact the path of Jesus by suffering like him so that we can share the glory with him, we need to know that that's going to come at the cost of suffering. And that the same troubles and trials that will kind of consume the wicked in this world will actually also purify his people at the same time. Therefore, trust your soul, trust your life to the faithful God who is good for us as we do good. Yet, here's a problem we find with a passage like this. We are shocked when trials find us. We are astonished. We're a little bit surprised when they find us. I mean, for sure, if you've lived with Jesus for five days as a Christian, you've caught yourself saying something like, but I've been doing quite a bit better. I've been living a holier life. I mean, I've been reading the Bible more and more. I've been showing up to churchish things more and more. I've been a better steward of my mouth, my eyes, my money. I've been doing so well. And then you brought this now? Or I'm already suffering in A, B, and C. I didn't have any more room to suffer, but now you're doing this now? Right? Suffering feels so blind and indiscriminate. It just plows through us. The timing of suffering, it feels cruel. The delivery of it, it feels cruel. And because we are so surprised and shocked when it comes to us, we indulge in self-pity, self-medication, self-isolation. That's what we do. And he uses the word fiery trial. That's not 
That's not a small detail there. He's carrying on the same conversation that he's been going through since the very first chapter. Trials will purify you and me like a furnace or a forge will purify a metal when it really gets to cooking. He is carrying a metaphor from earlier. This is what he says close to verse 7 in chapter 1. He says, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the idea. When ore, metal ore, is pulled out of the ground, it is kind of an amalgam of what is valuable and what is useless. It just looks like a dumb rock if you don't know what you're looking at, right? And, and when you're holding it just at room temperature, just on normal conditions, there's really no way to pull the value out of that and leave the impurities or to pull the impurity out and leave the value. The only way that you can drive a wedge between what is valuable and what is useless is really, really intense heat. Like melt your face intense. That's the only way you can get the valueless, the useless stuff to come out of it. Really hot and incredible. Because impurities, they can't hide in that kind of heat. The dross, and that's what the Bible calls it, the dross, the impurities, they kind of float to the top. They can be skimmed off at that moment. Maybe it burns off. But that's where it stops hiding. This is what Peter's mind came to when considering your trials. This is the metaphor. This is the image that he thought of was a really, really hot furnace. Intense heat extracting what is useless. Trials reveal what we cannot see in times of peace. We're not able to see it. Here's a confession. I love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength. And I love other things as well. Equal confession. I trust God with every fiber of my being. And I trust other things too. You want to know how I can see that? Trials. Trials show me what else I love. They show me what else I lean on that can't hold up my weight. Without heat added to my life, I wouldn't be able to even see the disloyalties and the allegiances that are hiding and camouflaged and lurking. And they do hide. They do hide. When everything is normal and peaceful, all that stuff can just cooperate and stay hidden in your life. But when trusting Jesus threatens those allegiances, that's what we call suffering. That's what the definition of suffering is. You are going to know that you're in a fiery furnace when everything that is hidden comes out and feels threatened. This is what Jesus is doing whenever he speaks to his people in Matthew 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. Listen, no one thinks that they love money more than God until a trial comes. Nobody does. I could take a poll right here. You might not even love Jesus. You might not even be a Christian. But if I said, do you love God more or money more? I would bet we'd be somewhere around 100% people saying that they love God more than money, right? I think that's fair. Until a trial comes. And then whenever you have lost a lot of it, or you've had to sacrifice a bunch of it, or something is threatening all of it, then we see that there was a master hiding that we were devoted to, that the trial, the heat, would not allow to be hidden anymore. 
I know I'm in a fiery trial whenever I say to myself, okay, Luke, now you're going to see whether you serve God or you just want God to serve you. Now is when you're going to find out. And when the heat rises and all these competing allegiances are no longer hiding, that's the feel of a trial doing its job. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Just think about this. Without the fire of trials, you would never learn how to put God first. It's the only way to learn that. think, Think about all the trials that you've had in your life for whatever reason. All the fiery trials. Have they not formed you to this point? Consider the ones that you have now, the ones you carried in here with you. Are they not forming you? Can you not see a version of you that's a little bit different in a year, five years, ten years, because of what you're suffering through right now? Sure you can. Sure you can. This is how Bradford and Leaf got to the place where they were at. Lots of refining trials. I mean, let's face it, 2020 was brutal for most of us, right? Probably all of us. 2020 was a booger. In all honesty, I felt like 2018 was harder for me. I felt like that was a hard year. 2007, really hard year. 2008, not not a whole lot better. But you know what was hardest about those years? Not just that there were trials. It said I could finally see stuff that had been hiding. And although I was grateful to the Lord enough to where I could greet the trials and be thankful for the trials because he's showing me things that were lurking and hiding I couldn't see. I was still disgusted but why I was seeing. It's hard because this is what they do. Trials don't just reveal impurities. They will show you that those impurities, they will expose them for their uselessness. will show that they're not going to save you. They're not going to satisfy you. This is what It says in Jeremiah 27, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, stay where you're at. But he's talking about God's people. And he says, God's people say to a tree, you are my father. And they say to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. Isaiah 44, and don't turn there, he he will actually kind of compound the same idea. And it's where this guy, he's painting a picture of this deluded man who has a fire. And he's cooked over this fire. He has kept himself warm by this fire. But whenever he's done with that, he pulls out a piece of wood, I guess the wood that's left that's not burned, and he carves an idol out of it. And then he worships this thing, knowing that it's just a piece of wood, knowing that it was just fuel just a minute earlier. And this man, Isaiah says, he prays to it and says, deliver me for you, wood, are my God. He goes on to say, this man feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. Fiery trials are going to show how useless those idols are, those competing allegiances, those disloyalties. It's just wood. It's just a tree. Just a stone. It promises that it's going to save you. It's not going to save you. It promises that it's going to bring significance to you, but it never really delivers. I mean, listen, when I moved here, this is an extreme example, but it is to paint the picture of what I'm trying to say. When I first moved to Knoxville over a decade ago, one of the things that was maybe new to me 
was how unhinged the fan base was here. Now listen, I've been in, in college football a long time. I was a chaplain with a football team, not here. I, I've been around the college football world for a really long time. I had never seen a fan base like this before. I'd listen to it on sports radio and I'd think, this has got to be a joke. Like that caller was joking, right? He works for the station. Does not. I mean, to some people, the team is more than just a team. Can we agree on that? It's more than just a team. For some people, they don't put all their gear on and face paint themselves and go to Vol Navy and walk on everyone's boat and eat barbecue. They're not doing that because they really just enjoy the game. They're doing it because their life needs it. Because if the team is a success, they feel like a success. If the team has a national identity, they feel like they have an identity. If the team feels like it looks like it's got meaning, they feel like they have meaning. That's why when the team does poorly, they just scorch earth. They rail on these athletes who are like 18, 19. It's more than just a team. You, you've probably been around someone who lost a job once, right? They lose this job and they disappear. They go in a hole. They get hooked on something. They don't show up to anything anymore. They won't return your calls. That job was more than just a job to them. Or you've known someone that lost a spouse. Divorce, death, doesn't matter. They lost a spouse. And you come to realize real quickly, whoa, that spouse was more than just a spouse to them. Sometimes we can take good things like a football team or a job or a spouse and we can make them an ultimate thing. And we can say, deliver me, save me, give me meaning, give me identity, give me safety, give, give me, give me something. And then when that is taken away, we feel like our life is meaningless. Listen, you can have a great spouse and a great job, but those things are never going to be a really good Jesus to you. But a hard trial will show that too, right? That's what trials are good for. When a trial comes and we say to ourselves, my life is meaningless now. There's no meaning to my life. You can finally see that not only did you have hidden disloyalties, but they can't stand. And they can't save you. They can't sustain you. They can't satisfy you. I mean, consider in your life, what is the must-have non-negotiable in your life that you can't live without? What is that right now? you because a fiery trial will expose it and when you feel the heat that's what we call suffering now let me just say this I had to say this last week I'm going to say it again this week just to be very clear suffering doesn't come to you just to grow you what I mean by that is God's not looking at you and saying, you know what, I'd like for this person to grow a little bit, so I'm going to use suffering. That's not exactly how that happens. We suffer in different seasons for different reasons. Right? We saw this last week. Sometimes we suffer because people are broken. They thrust it upon us. Sometimes we suffer because this world is broken. That's what a pandemic did to us. That's what a tornado will do to us. Sometimes we suffer because we are broken and we make moronic decisions. We do something dumb and unwise and all of a sudden we're suffering. We suffer for various reasons at various times, right? But all of our suffering will do one unique thing to us and it will reveal and bring us face to face with what's been hidden, with what's been lurking. It makes us face the feeling of something that we must have that we don't have anymore. Suffering removes what is useless in our life. And a lot of the times when that happens, it makes us useful. This is what it says in Proverbs 25. Take away the dross from the silver and the smith 
has material for a vessel. And all that means is, is when the dross and the impurities are removed from the metal, then the metal becomes something of value for the craftsman. The craftsman can use it. This is how you build the muscles of trust in faith to lift the kind of weight that Bradford and Leaf are recorded lifting. They didn't get there overnight, these guys. But they got there through trials. They got there through trials. King David had a bear and a lion before he had a Goliath. And so go our trials, readying us, getting us ready for a hotter and hotter furnace. So that we would be purified to the point where when our master, our craftsman looks upon our life, can see his reflection in the metal. This is how Bradford goes from worshiping a piece of wood to kissing it and saying, the Lord make me worthy. But even for guys like that and King David and the martyrs of Revelation 12, it must have felt like they were being destroyed in the moment. That's what it feels like. They were being crushed, extinguished in our suffering. This is what Jesus says in John to you and me. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, we're familiar with this. It's actually a different way of saying kind of the same thing. Different metaphor, same concept. Pruning doesn't look like it feels very good. Listen, there is this tree in Knoxville. I was talking to my wife about it yesterday when we were driving around. I don't know what it's called. I'm sure you know. I'm sure you'll tell me later. There's some tree that whenever they prune it, it just looks ridiculous, right? It's like cut down to the nub. It looks like a stump holding nubs. It looks like some antlers coming out of the ground. It doesn't even look like a tree anymore, right? And when we first moved here, I would see that and I'd think, well, that, that's never going to grow back. It's like everybody went to lunch and left a 14-year-old with a chainsaw and said, prune that tree. And they just didn't know where to stop, so they just kept cutting, right? It looks dumb, like it's never going to grow back. And every year it grows back. Every year it grows back. Every year I'm wrong. Just this year I'm driving around and looking at those dumb trees. And I thought, what a dumb looking tree. That's never going to grow back. Why did they just cut the whole thing down? And sure enough, watch, in four months it's going to be beautiful. It is. Because that's what pruning does. Or if you see a coach with an athlete. I coached runners for 10 years, over 10 years. And, man, they act like you are killing them in the moment, these, these teenagers, these high school athletes. Coach, I can't do one more. I'm sure you can do one more. Coach, I can't. I'll die. I can't do one more. I feel crushed. I feel like you're going to be just fine. You're running your mouth. You could be running around the track. Let's get to going. we got a lot to do. They just complain and they complain, but they always end up doing it. It looks so cruel. And like if a parent was there, they'd probably pull me aside. But I'm not killing them. I'm getting something great out of them. I'm pulling something great out of them. If you've got kids and you're raising your kids, don't they feel like you're killing them? You're ruining my life. You're destroying my life. You're crushing. No, you're not. You're maturing them. You're growing them. You're loving them. We know all of this. And yet we're shocked when it happens to us. We're shocked. I mean, how are you supposed to respond to what's being exposed to you in your fiery trial? I mean, the first answer is, is not with astonishment. Not with surprise that it's happening. I mean, let's face it. Jesus, he was grieved, but he was not surprised. Right? He, was, he wasn't bitter. He wasn't sarcastic. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He wasn't medicating. He knew that there was a point to his suffering. 
He knew that there was glory to be shown, there was glory to be shared, but he still grieved. Bradford, Leaf, I'm sure they were pretty sad by the fact they weren't going to see their friends anymore. I bet they were rocked by the idea that they were going to be burned at the stake the next day. I bet that wasn't easy. I know he said, thank God I've been looking forward to this, but you don't think there was a minute where he contemplated the way he was going to die? Guarantee there was. There was a moment where Paul is crying with the Ephesian elders that he knew he was never going to see again, and they knew the same. But they thank God for the opportunity to suffer in the shape of Jesus in order to apprehend the glory of Jesus. So listen, when suffering comes to you, there's a few things that I want you to recognize. And some of you, you need to do it today because you're suffering right now. One is recognize that God is present, he's good, he's powerful, he is sovereign in the midst of your suffering. Just because you're suffering, it doesn't mean that God is aloof or he's thoughtless. But he is present. And he's good to you. I want you to look at the cross whenever you're in the midst of your own suffering. Right, the cross is this the epicenter of God being good and powerful, and yet there was drastic suffering. The most suffering that's ever been experienced in the history of mankind was on that cross. Use that cross to just remind yourself that you are not alone, that God is good, that he is strong, he is sovereign. Two is recognize that you are going to come face to face with things that have been hidden. That's what you can expect. All the stones and trees in your life, the things that you've been leaning on, it's going to be revealed. It's going to be shown. Third is recognize you're in a place of intimacy and growth. That's a treasured place. That's a very sharp place. James 1, he says it this way, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That you may be able to enjoy Jesus when the furnace gets really hot. Four, recognize that you're reenacting Jesus' work and will share glory with him. Which is what he says in 4.13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Or in Acts, Acts 5, the disciples were just beaten and they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They knew that there was a shared death to be had and there was going to be a shared life to be had as well. So feel free to grieve heavily for what is lost. Take time to do that. Jesus did. He wept. He was sad. He felt the tentacles of suffering reach deeper than any human has ever felt. Feel free to grieve to the glory of God. I mean, there's spiritual disciplines you can use to do this. When the pandemic started, we used a bunch. We used lament a lot as a church. That's a great one. Feel free to grieve to the glory of God. But don't be surprised when it comes to you. And listen, don't waste it either. There are ways that we can waste that fiery trial, and you see it happen all the time. Here's how you know when you're wasting, you're in the midst of wasting a fiery trial. And when I say these things, don't just think about your own life. I want you to consider the people that you do life with, the ones that you are in tight proximity with, where you can see that they, they themselves are suffering through a, a fiery trial. This, these will be some tells. One is that we waste our trials 
by being entranced in self-pity. Self-pity is a form of surprise. Self-pity is a form of being shocked that it has found you. It's the wasting of suffering because we refuse to contend with what's being hidden. And we are instead shocked that something so horrible could happen to us. And here's the issue, especially when it comes to community with someone that's walking in self-pity. If you're walking in self-pity, what you're doing is you're begging other people to pity you, to pity with you. You take your victimhood and you put it up on a pedestal. And although it's not good enough for you to worship it, you need everybody else to worship it as well. That's what it does. It kills community. It's destructive. It dominates every conversation. It dominates every moment of celebration. It's a tell. If somebody is around you and they cannot help but be the center of the conversation with their trials and their struggles, you need to know that they are shocked that something has hit them. The other one is that we waste our trials by being absorbed in escape. Whether you're trying to escape people or you're trying to escape the trial itself, it's also a refusal to see the dross for what it is. To see the impurities for what they are. I mean, listen, self-medicating your suffering, it's not going to prepare you for Bradford's stake or Paul's sword. Because it just refuses the path of Jesus. It refuses it. And it doesn't even work. God loves you too much to let you live with that. So the trial will return. The trial will return. And listen, as a church of missionaries, it's important to know Those you're walking with who are far from Christ, those who would say they don't love Jesus, maybe you would say that they don't love Jesus. If you're doing long life with them, seasons with them, for certain you will see a moment where a trial is exposing what they've been living with as a piece of wood. They would have come up short. You'll be able to see it. They won't. You'll need to help them see that. All they're going to hear is the idol's false pledge of you need to give me a little bit more, a little bit more. You need to worship me more, which means you need to work more, drink more, give more, talk about yourself more. But if you do a little bit more, you will finally get what you've always been hunting for. That's what an idol says. That's why people that have one, they don't have a, a very easy time seeing it. It takes people around them that love them to help point it out. Because, again, idols take good things. Even good things, and they declare them ultimate things, and they demand that we worship them for satisfaction. That thing that you cannot, if the, listen, if this is you, whether you're watching online or you're here, if this is you, and there's just, your life is meaningless. It's meaningless right now because something has been removed. Your piece of wood, your tree, your stone that you've been worshiping, but you do not love Jesus. You need to know that you're not going to be able to fit anything else in there that is going to save you where the last one failed you. You cannot do that. As Isaiah says, you're feeding on ashes. The gospel story, however, is a good one. Mainly because we're being saved from ourselves. Right? We make our own idols. We're being saved from ourselves. And we're being saved by one who crushed and he was pruned so that we would bear fruit. Christ himself was mowed down so that you would have life. He was cut short so that you would thrive. This is what it says in Isaiah 53 as we start to finish this out. He was despised and rejected by men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So you go ahead and stand with me as we, as we finish this out. We're going to finish it with communion like we normally do. And if you didn't grab one of these cups and you'd like to take communion with us, someone will have them at the back. Can somebody go back and I don't know who's, yeah, Tyler will do it. Um, grab, these, grab the tray of these communion elements and he'll bring them in. And listen, if you are a part of another church or you are a Christian and you'd like to take communion with us, that's totally fine. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about taking communion right now. I just want you to consider what God has done for you. I want you to consider the, the truth that is inside of what we're about to do, but there's nothing here that's going to save you. I agree with Bradford and Leith. This isn't going to do anything different. This is not magical, although it's supernatural. We can say that with confidence. It's a memorial that has meaning to it. It is representative of the table of trust and trial. That's what the communion table is for all of us. It's where we carry our disloyalties. It's where we bring our allegiances. And let me just tell you, it's not too late for you. If you're struggling in the middle of a trial right now and you've done nothing but botch it up, you've done nothing but just turn right when you should have turned left, go ahead and raise your hand if you need one of these. And Tyler will bring them. It is not too late for you to pivot today and to double down and commit that you could grieve to the glory of God and greet this suffering as a fiery trial as you look at the hidden allegiances to come out. This, this table is where we bring our self-pity to die. Listen, growth doesn't happen at room temperature. It only happens in a furnace. That's where it happens. So this table is where we bring our self-pity to die. It's where we grieve what we've lost. And then we celebrate along with Bradford that we've been counted worthy of every suffering that comes our way. It's where we join Bradford and we say, the Lord make me worthy. Listen, whatever trial you're going through right now, don't you think that God has built you for that moment? Don't you think that he has readied you for that moment? Don't you think that he has you in that spot at this time, in this moment? Because he wants to grow you? This is the place where we renew our resolve to entrust our souls to a faithful God. And this is also the table that we celebrate, that even if we fail at this, and we suffer poorly, we grieve poorly, we self-medicate we self-isolate. We do everything wrong. We find self-pity. This gospel's so good that the blood that's represented by this juice, it covers that sin too. 
that there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. It's the beauty of the story of the gospel that we share. So let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for what you're doing, not just in a sermon like this, but through your spirit. Lord, I know that it's through your spirit that you speak to us. It's through your spirit that we see that we have allegiances and disloyalties floating around, that the furnace burned all the way to the top. They couldn't hide anymore, and now we see them. And it's your spirit that doesn't just show it to us, but empowers us to greet you, to celebrate being worthy, and to put whatever it is down, and to call you Lord, to entrust our soul, entrust our life to you. So, Father, as we look at the the flesh just pictured by this wafer, Lord, we know that a body was broken, that you were crushed so that we would live. You were pruned so that we would bear fruit. You were put in the crucible, the forge and the furnace that we would find life. So we take this in remembrance of you. And Lord, we know that this juice is emblematic of the blood that was spilled. Lord, because you as well as Bradford and Leaf and Paul and Peter and those in Revelation, Father, you greeted death. You say it was for the joy that was before you, that you tackled the cross. You greeted it because of what it was producing. Lord, that you trusted as your blood drained from you. You trusted that God was good and present and in control and sovereign. So, Lord, in remembrance of you, we too take this. So, Lord, we just pray that in this time of singing and reflection and prayer, Lord, that you would show us and reveal the dross in our life right now. You've been doing that to me over the last week or two, and it's been painful. And yet at the same time, I've been incredibly encouraged that there is victory. I know there's victory to get beyond it because you wouldn't be showing it to me if there wasn't any victory to be had. So I'm excited. It makes me thankful. It makes me encouraged. It makes my heart warm. It makes me smile in the face of death, in the face of struggle because of what you're producing in the midst of it. And I pray that you would, through your spirit, do it in all of us today. And Lord, for those who are watching and they're skeptics, or maybe they're just searching, Lord, that you would reveal with your spirit the wood and the tree and the stone that they've been leaning on, whether it's work or a significant other or money or health. Something that promises that it won't let them down, that it will deliver ultimate satisfaction. Lord, that you would show that those are lying. They never have and they never will. That you'd make it very clear to them, Lord. So, Lord, we love you. You're very good to us. And in this moment, we worship you as King on high. In your name we pray. Amen.